So my philosophy is don't figure out, don't worry about the how. Your job is to do and to believe. Put yourself in the position and allow things to attract to you. Allow the, the necessary things, the resources that you need to be, become available. And that's what happened to him. He, he put it This up. episode of the Tide Capital Millionaire Podcast is sponsored by 17th Watches. 17th Watches aims to be a pioneer in watchmaking style, creating a perfect union between simplicity and class. At 17th Watches, time is the only luxury. You can find 17th Watches at 17th-watches.com. Tide Consulting is offering free 15-minute consultations during the month of September. If you are looking for information on how to invest in stocks or which stocks to buy, if you are interested in investing in real estate and are looking for help doing so, or if you just want to organize your hustle with a limited liability company, schedule your free consultation today by emailing charles at capitaltod.com or visiting toddcapital.youcanbook.me. Sellerfinancingonly.com. Do you own a home, condominium? apartment building or land free and clear? Have you ever considered selling it? Well, not just sell it. You hold the mortgage and become the bank. Welcome to the world of seller financing. Instead of the potential buyer getting a mortgage from a bank or credit union, you give them the mortgage. You set the interest rate. The buyer pays you every month for 5, 10, 15, or 30 years, whatever you and the buyer agree on. Seller financing only. Join us today. This is the Tide Capital Millionaire Podcast. This is episode number 76. My name is Charles Oglesby, also known as Tide Millionaire. I'm the founder and the director of the Tide Capital Investment Club that has over 300 members. Also the founder of Tide Acquisitions, our real estate investment club. Thank you all for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to share the stories of successful African-American investors and business owners so that people can hear the stories of successful examples because they exist. We want people to learn that business and investing are the true keys to financial success and generational wealth. With us today, we have Mr. Nathaniel Moore, Nathaniel T. Moore. He is somebody that I found on Instagram as a referral from Law of Her- Herbert, who's also on Instagram. So he uh, comes highly regarded. And I started digging, started doing some research, and that was just kind of like the introduction didn't really do the actual research justice. This guy has been doing some amazing things in business and real estate, and he started at a super young age. So I want to kind of read off his bio so you guys get a more thorough understanding of who we're about to talk to, and then we'll bring him in. So Nathaniel is a serial entrepreneur and the CEO and founder of MCIG, which is a holding company that acquires struggling companies in the child care and medical industry with multiple locations serving over 500 families. Nathaniel rose to prominence in the early 2000s, buying and selling real estate at the age of 19. After finding early success in real estate, Nathaniel then acquired his first business at the age of 22, taking the company from one location to seven locations and revenues in the multi-millions. Nathaniel is also the founder and coach of Why More, a personal development company that helps millennials find clarity, direction, and purpose. Nathaniel also mentors over 80 millennials through a private mastermind group where his focus is to deliver a personal breakthrough in self-confidence, relationships, finances, and marriages through personal development principles created by Nathaniel. So with that, welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on, man? That is quite the intro there. I appreciate <laughs> it. So um, <laughs> before we got on the show, you told us that you live in Louisiana. Is that where you're from? That is where I'm from. I'm, I'm born and raised in Lafayette, Louisiana and uh, been here all my life. So this is the only place I know and call home. So you got started in real estate and business ownership very early. Can you tell us uh, what in your early life, what was your early life like? And then what brought you to starting to take action in your early teens or your your teens, your late teens? Yeah, so I I like to think that at the start of every uh, venture or every direction or direction change, I, I, I like to believe that there's uh, some sort of event that happened. And in my life, that event was my parents got a divorce. And so I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor full time. And, uh, and when that happened, uh, I was at the age of about 16, 17. 
And, uh, and it was, it was a big deal because I remember moving out of the house when I was 17, I picked up a book called rich dad, poor dad, I, you know, so to this day, I don't know who recommended it. I don't even know how I heard about it. But once I read that book, I literally read it in one day. I didn't put it down. And once I read that book, everything changed. Now, I didn't start buying real estate until I was 19, but at the age of 17, after I read that book, what I did was I was looking in the paper at, uh, you know, uh, different businesses, there's business sections, you know, for sale. And so I was looking at those things, just getting my, jogging my memory uh, in my mind around those, those deals, you know, and I'll make the phone calls and try to, you know, get my spiel together, but all to which I was just, uh, challenging myself to make the phone calls. And it wasn't until I was 19, I purchased my first property, uh, dropped out of college. And uh, once I did that, you know, I, I started interviewing people in, in, while I was in college. And, and the main thing that I heard was, was, you know, they've changed their major a couple of times, was in college four or five years. And so I, I was like, okay, I, I have a choice here. I can either stay in college, be surrounded by the same people. The likelihood of me changing my major a couple of times is very possible. Me being here for four to five years, six years is very, is highly possible. Or I can take my chances on the street and, uh, and give, dedicate my life four years uh, and see what, where that gets me. And that's what I did. You know, I dropped out of college, uh, got into the car business, specifically to learn how to sell, uh, how to negotiate, uh, product demonstrations, communicating with clients and customers, all of those different things I needed to learn in order to negotiate and buy real estate. And so that's when uh, I bought my first property at the age of 19. And, uh, you know, it's funny, <laughs> when that happened, you know, the, the guys that were selling cars that worked with me, that have been there for years, the number one thing they would always say is nobody would loan money to a 19-year-old. Nobody would do that. and that to me was a driving force for me to say, you know, no, it is possible. Somebody else has done it. Why not me? And that's, that's kind of how I got started. For a lot of people that book Rich Dad Poor Dad really changes their life. Can you talk to us a little bit about what in the book Rich Dad Poor Dad is what inspired you to take that business and investing uh, path in life? So I come from a family, it was the poor dad, you know, it was my dad, he was a pastor, you know, my mom was, uh, she did not work. And so that's all I knew. You know, all I knew was going to church three times, four times a week, watching my dad do what he did. And that's really all I knew. And the people that I surrounded myself with was the same thing. I didn't even know there's this other world until I read that book. So right. specifically, how he's talking from the poor family to the rich family, as I was reading, it was so interesting to me because it was just a complete perspective change for me. Like it was mind blown, you know, it's like blinders were taken off of my eyes and, and I had to know more about that. I agree. <laughs> and I think that's one of the struggles that you can sometimes have is when you're trying to explain those principles to somebody who hasn't read that book or hasn't been exposed to that world, to them it's like, it doesn't make sense. They're like, their whole life they've been taught, go to work, get a job, go to work, get a job, get a paycheck. And then when you expose them to a world that exists in cash flow and rental income and business income, passive income, they're like, they just, they, they, they fight it sometimes. Do you think people fight you sometimes when you try to kind of show the light or do you just kind of, because this, this is, and I'm kind of glad I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to go off script a little bit, but my thing is a lot of times I'll spend time trying to get friends and family to understand what, or what path I'm trying to go towards. And what advice do you have for me as somebody who's already done that and obviously has friends and family that might not get it and then people who have, you've actually like convinced, how did you get them to see it or did you even try? No, I don't, I don't try very often. Uh, you know, so I believe that, uh, you know, when somebody is ready, you know, they, they will start paying attention. And for me, it's all about demonstration. Because there's so much talk, there's so much things that you can see. People know, man, like they, your social media, you, you see the, the environment is already flawed because you can look at social media, you can look, look at other people's success and family or perceived success. And so that's what they see, that's what they hear. But when it's, ten, when it's in their face and it's demonstrated and there's progress being made, 
now you become interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell the people that I coach is the reason why you connected with me because I was the most interesting guy in the room. That's the reason that's what, that's what you saw that attracted you. You could have read my bio. You could have known everything about me, but it wasn't until you saw me, you said, I got to get to know that guy. And that's the difference maker is when you're doing things in your life and you're developing yourself and you, you, you built this confidence about yourself of, you know, where you're headed. Look, man, so many people don't know, don't have an idea which direction they're going in. So when they, when somebody has a direction and operates within that confidence, dude, that's attractive. And now you become the most interesting person, which now you don't have to sell yourself. People are paying attention, whether they say it or not, they're paying attention. And, and that's the key for me and how I coach others is you have to be the most interesting guy. You have to be uncommon where everybody else is common. And if you can do that, that's the end of your selling days. And now your demonstration is doing all of the selling for you. Wow. I like it. So I'm going to take you back to your, your, your past a little bit. And I want to talk about that first business. Um, how did you start that first business and what kind of business was that? So my first business I bought at 22 as a daycare center. Uh, and so I recall early on in the show, I was talking about making those phone calls about those businesses in the, in the quick quarter. So I was doing that early on in my teenage years. And it wasn't until I was 22 when I actually made, I pulled the trigger. And so that was a daycare business. Uh, they had it listed for 150,000. Uh, the business uh, showed it was cash flowing about thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, cash flow meaning net profit. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, uh, let me take a look at this thing. So I, I called the broker and said, hey, look, I'm interested. You know, uh, what's the deal? What's the scoop? And so he gave me the rundown. I said, well, let me go take a look at it. So I go take a look at it as if I had the money, you know. Uh, and what I found out there was. You know, the business was struggling and wasn't doing very well and it needed some, it needed some attention. And at the point where I was in my regular job, I was a general manager turning around uh, a, a motorhome dealership at the age of 22. So I realized that I want to turn things around. I'm a fixer. I invest in people. And so once I got into that business, uh, I, was, I was able to negotiate it all the way down to $15,000. Which wow. people are like, how did that happen? You see, a lot of people are deferred by what the list price says, mm-hmm. but they don't pay attention to the detail. They don't, they don't go any further than that because if you can scratch the surface, there's always a story beyond the list price. Lots of people will just glance at, a, at, at, the, at, the, you know, at the tip of the surface and say, okay, this is out of my budget, out of my price range, or I can't get resources for this. I'll go to the next deal. Whereas I didn't do that. I just scratched the surface a little bit and dug a little bit and realized that there was a story there and there were some motives there that I can work with in my favor that I can now negotiate and end up, you know, negotiating it down to $15,000 and taking over the company. Man, I'm going to ask questions. And so it might not be as conversational, but it's a lot of, a lot of really important information I want to pull out of that. So the first question is, you got the price down to 15. How did you finance that 15? Did you pay cash or did, how did, how did that financing look? So my brother, uh, interesting. He, he wanted to buy, he wanted to get into the daycare business as well. So as I was negotiating at 150,000, I got it down to 80. And when he told me he was interested, I said, okay, go ahead. You know, I'll turn it over to you. You can pursue it. Uh, well, as he started digging a little bit more, he realized there was a bankruptcy involved. There were some taxes that was due and he just got scared off by that. For me, it was what I was looking for. So I told him, I said, look, no problem. Uh, I'll, I'll take it over. If you're scared, I'll take it back over and I'll finish negotiating. And so because of that, in the state of where it was at, I was able to get back into the seat in control of the deal and get it down to 15,000 worth. Now that I was in control of the deal, he was like, well, I'm interested in not financing it because he saw the confidence that I had and the ability to make it work. He just wrote on that confidence. But as long as he was in 
the driver's seat, he didn't see that confidence because of the unknown of the taxes and the bankruptcy and the different things that was going on with the business. For me, I was prepared for what I was looking for. So I was already mentally into the game. And so once he saw and recognized that confidence, he says, well, I mean, I can go to the bank and get $15,000. And that's how that deal was first. Uh, was he went to the bank, he got the $15,000, and uh, and that's how we got it financed. Like it. When you find a business that's cash flowing, how can you be confident that it's going to continue to cash flow without the prior earner, owner still there? So you, you got to take into consideration that uh, your cash flow will dip a little bit uh, with new transition and new ownership. But as long as there's some type of credibility and you can you can build some type of trust immediately uh, with the customers, with the staff, the employees within the business, uh, you can eliminate uh, the factors of the cash flow dipping. Because in the end of the day, a business is simply somebody adding, uh, offering a service and somebody's buying that service. And so if you can right. not only up the game uh, of the current service and what's currently happening, but offer and inject some new ideas. Also encourage the current staff there, changing the morale and the environment and the culture there, then the odds are upside opposed to the other direction. Right, right. How did you find this business? Did you, um, was it listed or did you just find it through doing your own uh, direct marketing of some sort? So this business was listed, um, uh, again, uh, I ran across in the Quick Quarter, which is a local paper here, which I would encourage your listeners to do. Uh, you know, it's a good entry point to find your local paper. And there's a lot of listings and motivated sellers that are in that paper. But there was, there was an ad uh, being run by Sunbelt Business Broker. It's a national uh, chain. And what they do is they offer businesses and sell them confidentially. So it's not... You know, you're not going to see the actual name of the business, but you'll see the industry, you'll see the revenues, and you'll see the cash flow in a description of the business. Uh, and so I made that phone call to the broker and said, hey, look, I, you know, since I was 18, I was making those calls. Hey, man, if you get a business that's in distress, give me a call, give me a call. They laughed at me originally and said, you know, <laughs> we don't know any 18-year-olds that buying businesses. <laughs> you know, but I kept at it. You know, uh, I kept at it. I'll call them and say, hey, look, you got anything that's distressed? Uh, want to get in there with limited money down. And sure enough, man, uh, you know, that's how I found that business uh, was it was in distressed shape. And that's how, uh, but it was, it was all to which making those calls, you know, uh, and that's how I found the business. But that's a good tip for people that are looking for companies is that you want to find brokers that are offering these companies confidentially. And just like a realtor offers a home, there's an agent that's offering businesses. When you're buying a business, what kind of due diligence do you do to make sure that it's a, a good buy? So without getting too far into the weeds of the financials, a lot of people go for the generic term, which is called a profit and loss. I, you know, I'm not interested in the profit and loss. I'm looking at bank statements because uh, I want to I know what revenue is coming in and out of there. That's make the deposits that are being made. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, I look at the presence of uh, the business online. Do they have social media presence? Do they have a website? Is their email address uh, the same as their business name or the website's address? If it's a Gmail account, that's something I'm looking at. Uh, if they, I'm looking at their reviews. Uh, I'm looking at what kind of history if they do have a social media platform. Uh, I'm looking at uh, what type of personnel works there, how long they've been there for. Those are the type of questions that I'm asking uh, in the due diligence because for me, I don't want to buy a business and buy a job. Right. I'm looking to buy a business where I can now cash flow it, make an income, and have somebody else that's more passionate than I am run the business. And so that's one of the major keys for me is to identify a person, to, to get to know the person. And you'll say, well, how can you do that uh, whenever – you just in a due diligence process and they don't, and it's confidentially. So I asked the owner, tell me, you know, your most loyal uh, employee there. And each one of them can name it right off the top. But they, the problem is in this transition period in businesses is that 
the old generation will not entrust the younger generation. They don't think they have what it takes or capable to run the business just as they can. Right. But it's, it's, it's furthest from the truth. And that's what's so valuable is when you ask them, who's your most loyal person? And you take those names down. And you make it now part of the due diligence process once you get towards the end where funding is pretty much approved, uh, all of these things. There's a good relationship there. Then you say, well, I want to meet this person. And, awesome. I, and, I, and once I meet that person, I know whether I'm moving forward on that business or not. Wow. That's really cool. Because that's the key. You know, I don't go into business to turn the whole business. I go in there to invest in people so that they can help me turn the business around. So your goal is effectively to make that person the general manager so that then they run the business. Is that where you're getting at? Correct. That's correct. That is so dope. It's cool because I was reading, I'm pretty sure you've either read this book or heard of it, but when I read the book, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun?, I realized that the business buys the business. The actual individual buying the business doesn't buy the business. And so your goal is to buy a business and then use that revenue to then pay off the debt if you take on a loan or to then pay off your partner if you take on a partner. But I never looked at it in the sense that the business actually runs the business too. Because one of the reasons why I've always looked at buying a business and kind of backed away is because. I didn't have enough faith in myself to step in and run that business as well as the business owner that was leaving. But you're saying it doesn't matter what you do. What matters is the people that are already there who have been doing it for a while. And so you effectively have the owner step out and then he probably had somebody who can do his job as good as him, if not better. And then you allow them to step into those shoes. Exactly right. That's awesome. Charles, we're in a period of time and a transition in the industry, any industry where the older generation is now turning it over to this new generation called millennials. Right. And so with that, there's a, there's a great divide in the beliefs of that old generation and this young generation. Whereas the old generation, it's, they have to be involved. They have to have hands on and they don't want to hear the questions being asked. They just want you to work. And so with that mentality, they will always have a job. <laughs> Whereas the millennial says, hey, I can come in there and offer all kinds of different techniques, automate a lot of this stuff and free up my time and reinstill the culture, the vision of the company. And that's what millennials is what's attracted to millennials in the first place. But because the old generation says, hey, I'm the best, I'm hands on, I got to be involved they lose out in multiplying their time and finding their replacement. The right. key for me in going into a business is that it sustains itself, that the business takes care of itself and that it's growing and innovating from the team within itself. Extremely important to me. So I, I, the first question I asked you was, when did you start your first business? And your answer was that you bought your first business, which is, Awesome. You remind me a lot of Ace Chapman. I'm not sure if you know that guy. Uh, no, my, my question is, why do you buy businesses as opposed to starting businesses? It's a good question. So, I, you know, my philosophy was always, I want because I'm a fixer. I'm not a starter. I'm a fixer. And so it didn't matter what shape the business was in. I knew that I had the ability to be able to fix it as long as I identified the proper people. And so it was easier uh, to turn around a company that's already going, that's got a phone number that's already been in business that people know about. It's already got some kind of marketing there. Uh, it's already got some type of presence online, whether it's effective or not. Uh, it's already got a customer base and it's already offering a service. And so all I have to do is, is offer now more value for the service that's already provided. Now there's a bunch of upside. Whereas people go in from scratch, it's nothing wrong with that. But when you go into a business from scratch, it takes a lot of resources, a lot of time uh, to build in what's already built in something that's already existing. And so now you have a pool 
of things and people and resources that you can tap into. And also for me, you know, I got it. When I started, I started with nothing. I didn't have any money. When I bought my first property, I didn't have any money to put down. You know, so I took that same mindset and just took it into business. Whereas, hey, I'm just going to go in there and bet against my uh, ability to identify the leaders, to raise and train the leaders, to turn the company around that now I can use the cash flow to pay the debt off. Right, right. So I own or finance businesses. I don't go in there. A lot of these businesses are owner financed. That's definitely something I've been looking at is <clears throat> buying something that's owner finance as opposed to trying to get that loan because that can become a burden. And I think you were talking about that earlier where you said, hey, they're not giving loans to people who are 19 years old. And I guess your answer is we don't have to use banks. That's correct. You know, Charles, I believe that there is no limitations. There is none. There's so many ways to skin a cat. It's our job as an entrepreneur or a creative thinker to identify different ways to get it done. Dude, I got so many no's, but it was okay because now those guys that told me no's are the same ones that are in line to tell me yes. Mm. Because I didn't take their no to heart. I took their no as, okay, that's just that option. There's got to be another one. And... And I let them know that, hey, look, man, that's that's cool. You know, I, I mean, we're so good, but I'm gonna find that I'm gonna get this thing done, whether you believe in it or not. I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out the way to get this thing done. And there's a technique that I use in negotiating, and I'll share that with your listeners and you as well, is that once you drag on all you once you contract a deal and you get into the deal and you drag it on enough, long enough, well that that seller mentally if they're motivated, they are mentally checked out saying, this is my buyer. So they already start making preparations mentally and they are separated themselves from the business mentally. And once you drag them through that process and then you say, oh, couldn't get the financing, didn't work out. Well, now they become even more motivated. You just created motivation for them to sell because they're checked out. They don't want to go back in there. They don't want to deal with the issues. They don't want to have to you know, get the phone call. They don't want to do that anymore. So they're, they're now open. And now you now have leverage within the negotiating process to say, hey, man, let's do an owner finance deal. I'll pay you out in five years. Let's do an elevated interest rate because people are so naive. They don't they, they think that interest rate is the best thing since life. So you tell them, hey, I'll pay you 10 percent interest. They're like, oh, my God, this is the best deal ever. And all it does is cost you a couple of hundred dollars a month. But now you have an owner finance deal where now the business pays for that deal, pays for that note, and you have all the upside to go in and take over and raise the revenues in the business. If you take over a business and the revenues dip, what do you do if you're unable to make the payments on that, on that seller financing note? Never happened. Uh, but that, that's calculated. You know, so if I can't make the payment, I just renegotiate with the owner. And that's the beauty of owner finance. You're in a relationship now. And so when they owner finance, they believe in the business enough to know that they're going to be able to get their money through the owner finance program. That's dope. And through, through that process of due diligence, you create a relationship where they now believe in you. So now you go back and say, hey, I can't make this payment. Well, they believe in you because you have that relationship with them that this guy is a stand-up guy. He's done everything he could to make the business go forward. He just went back. So it can't be his fault. And we can negotiate. We haven't talked about your real estate deals yet. So I want to touch on those before we talk about uh, coaching and the things you're doing currently. That first deal at 19, what did that look like? I love that deal. So it was listed for 65000 on the MLS. And uh, it was in a rural area in town. Uh, and so I offered, uh, I offered 25,000. I went and looked at the property. I mean, so the seller, it had all the signs, you know, they were out of town. They didn't live here. So they lived way up North and they just didn't have a lot of eyes on the property. And all they heard from their realtor was this thing is disastrous. I mean, it needs some TLC. It's in terrible shape. So that's a flag for me that tips me off to say, I need to go look for that. I need to go look at that deal. 
So my realtor calls me and says, hey, I got one you need to go look at. I say, let's go check it out. Got everything that I, I just checked off all the things. And so I go look at the deal. Uh, and, you know, to my surprise, it was trashed. But, you know, it was all stuff that's cosmetic. It was just clothes everywhere. There was nothing wrong structurally of the townhouse. There was nothing wrong with the roof. There was, the place was in decent shape, but it was trash looking. Nobody decided to clean it up. So that now built a story for me and devalued the property that I went in and offered 25000 Now, mind you, my realtor said, you're crazy. You can't offer that low. And, you know, <laughs> there's going to be things in people's lives in each one of our lives that because what somebody else doesn't see or don't have a vision for it, they can't give you the best advice they can give you is from their perspective, which is average. And the listeners that listen to this, that's going to be listening to this just because now that you are and you, and, and that you listen to this podcast, you're not average. You don't desire to be that way. So there's going to be people that are going to say all kinds of stuff. That's going to have you change, try to change your mind, but I'm just telling you to stay focused and my realtor was like, you don't, you don't need to offer. Nobody would take that offer. That's just too low. That's an insult. Well, when I made that offer, actually, I made it for 20000 The guy comes back at 25000 <laughs> So now I have a property that's market value of 65000 that's appraised for 85000 that I have a, a, a counter at 25000 So I signed the contract at twenty five and fired my realtor. <laughs> so I contracted, I contracted at 25,000. I put $10,000 in it. I couldn't make the first payment. So I had to get it done in 30 days. And I ended up selling it for $71,000. So about a $36,000 profit. Roughly. roughly. That's right. Nice. Yeah. And did it all over again. Bought another one. So you just flipped your way through your, your, your early 20s is what it sounds like. That's correct. So I flipped, uh, at that point, I flipped eight properties. And then I started buying fourplexes. I have, four, I have three fourplexes, and now I have several homes in a small mobile home park. Nice. And so I started holding the properties. So I, 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 the flipping raised the capital for me. Mm-hmm. And then I started holding the properties, and then I got into uh, business flipping businesses. That's dope. That's exactly how you do it. <laughs> yeah, it's you know I, you know I like to encourage you and your listeners that when you buy these properties, what's imperative, the most important thing you can do is buy it right. And I know people have probably heard this said before, but you have to buy the property right. And what I mean by that is, is when you're putting down a down payment, you want to make sure you can get your down payment back out of it. So the bank will loan up to 80% loan to value, meaning 80% of whatever that value is. So if you're buying a property at 40 and 50%, well, now you have a net, you know, 20 to 30% that you can now take out of the property that you can use for multiple different reasons. You can use the collateral to buy another property, or you can use it to get a second mortgage to get your down payment back out of it. So there's two different options. You can either rent the house or you can flip the house. My job, what I did was I bought it in a position that I could rent it and get, get a second mortgage and pull the equity out of it, or I can flip it and just take the cash and put it into another property. But the key is you want to buy it right, and you never want to buy it where you can't get your money back out of it immediately. So we've talked about real estate. We've talked about buying businesses. We're going to talk about um, your coaching, your coaching uh, business now. And I guess my question is you're having so much success. What made you get into coaching? So when I was 27, I moved uh, into one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in my area. It's the only gated community uh, with the golf course. So I moved in the big house on the golf course, you know, uh, on one of the popular greens and, you know, this, this, it was awesome. You know, it, it was, I was playing golf three to four times a week, uh, 27. I was living life, you know, uh, but that was good for a very short period of time. I reached a place in my life where I thought 
where I perceived and dreamed of, but I was not happy. I wasn't satisfied then. And there was there was something that I was I still wasn't fulfilled. I didn't get that that feeling that I thought I was going to get. And so that that put me down this path of personal development. Uh, I read this book called From the Pent From the Poorhouse to the Penthouse, and it just really changed the way that I process my thoughts. Specifically because it was talking about the mind frame of an individual. And so whereas what I perceived was success was not success at all. I wasn't fulfilled. I identified myself as a successful businessman, but that's not who I really was. Who I really was was a person that invest that identified leaders, invested in leaders, and those leaders did things that they didn't think was possible in their lives, which in return caused the businesses to grow. And so, but if, well, people around me would say, man, you're an incredible businessman. And I read that press and believed that and soaked all that in. But what I really was through this, what I recognized through this personal development course that I created was, no, man, I, you know, my deal is, is investing in people, raising up people. And that's when the shift happened for me was, wait a second. I, you know, this whole time I thought I had to just keep buying business, buying business, and it's great. But really, was investing in people was really where my niche was and where my heart was and my passion was at. And so that's when I realized, wait a second, I need to be pursuing people instead of businesses. And it just kind of changed that perspective and that philosophy for me. What would you say is your most memorable turnaround consulting story or coaching story? <laughs> So I got this guy that's been with me for two years. He sat with me, he sat with me at my favorite restaurant, and he says, "You know, Nate, I got four thousand, five thousand dollars in my checking account. What can I do?" And I looked at him, and it just when you you can listen to a person, you can and you know exactly what they believe in. And so he talked the game, he had the knowledge, he read the books, but he just didn't put himself in the position to pull the trigger. And that's what I challenged him on was there is no limitations, bro. Forget about the 5,000, what you don't have. I want you to start thinking as you do have it, acting like you do have it and speaking like you have it. And that, that conversation changed his life. To me, it was just me being me to him. It literally changed his life. So within a month, he goes and puts on an offer on a property that's worth over $800,000 to do a development on it, new home development. He goes to put it on the contract. He has four to $5,000 in his checking account. He signs the contract, he gets into it, and he, now he's got to scramble to find an investor. So my philosophy is don't figure out, don't worry about the how. Your job is to do and to believe. Put yourself in the position and allow things to attract to you, allow the, the necessary things, the resources that you need to be, become available. And that's what happened to him. He, he put it on the contract. Investor, uh, because of his confidence in what he was doing and believing in the project, that was contagious and attracted an investor. And he pre-sold that whole subdivision. Pre-sold it. So he, he closes the deal. He, he contracts it with 5000 in his checking account. He remains confident, believing, sowing the seed, and guess what? He attracts the person that can fund the deal, closes on it, and gets it pre-sold by a builder in town. Now he's he's got a uh, a construction company that's he took from six hundred thousand dollars to over five million in revenue. I'm I'm coaching him through infrastructure uh, to you know to multiply his time. Now he's got four subdivisions uh, that he's. In the middle of them, three, three of the four are already contracted out. You know, they already are pre-sold subdivisions. So this is two years ago. Now I'm talking about a guy that's worth millions of dollars, but two years ago he only had 5000 in his checking account. And you say, Nate, what happened? And I will say it's a simple fact of just doing and believing and not trying to figure out all the hows and dot all the I's and cross all the T's. What's important is, is that you do and put yourself in a situation and things will become available to you. I like it. Awesome. So I was on your website 
and I saw some principles, some of which we've already talked about, but I kind of want to circle back around to get you to expand on those ideas. And one of those principles, I was watching one of your videos and you mentioned the idea of looking at deals that you can't afford. What's the purpose of that? <laughs> it's the ch it's, all it is is a challenge perspective and to get you to dream. And so it's, it's kind of like that adage where people say, I'll shoot for the stars and land in the, in the clouds or whatever in the sky or, and that's, you know, it's, 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 it's something about looking at something that you know you can't afford, but thinking about it as you can afford it. And that's the key of that slight direction change that separates you from the common and the average where it puts you in a place of believing solely and raising the expectation there. Whereas now you get those wheels turning and that's really the start of anything in your life is if you can challenge yourself mentally and you can raise the ball between the ears, dude, there's any, everything is now available to you. And that's the key with going, look at those deals and challenging yourself and getting the wheels turning and, and eventually you'll believe it and you'll make it, you'll make the move and you'll go put it on the contract. Nice. On one of your videos, you mentioned um, just kind of being yourself and not changing who you are based on your perception of what other people will think. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, super important because if you don't know who you are, if you don't have the confidence in who you are and you're not taking responsibility for where you are, then if you're not the loudest voice in your head, then everybody else, everything will become that. So for, for instance, you know, top salespeople become complacent because they forget about the things that they did to get there and they listen to the press of what everybody said about them. Oh man, you're so awesome. Man, you're the top salesperson. And they, they think in their mind at that point, well, it's because of who I am and my ability is the reason why I'm here. So now I can coast because I'm the top guy. But instead, focusing on the little things that you did to get there. And people will go out looking at everybody else, imitating the wealthy. They'll, uh, they'll say the same thing as the wealthy. And but what happens when that first circumstance comes or that curveball in life comes, imitation, imitating can only take you so far. But if you understand who you are and you take responsibility for where you are, when, when, when things come up, you're confident and you know who you are. And you say, I'm okay with these things because now I have, I'm an open learner and now I can take what is being said or being done and I can learn from it and self-evaluate. And I think a lot of people pay attention to what people say opposed to what do they think about themselves? What are you specifically capable of? And I think that's extremely important because we'll avoid ourselves and take the easy road and go look on social media, what people are doing and try to identify ourselves with them, but miss who we really are. Wow. I feel like that's so true, especially today, because it's so easy to get lost in other people and not build up yourself. Mm. So important. It's imperative. I mean, it's just, we, 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 put, we place ourselves in the back burner. Right. So this isn't really like the show oriented, it kind of is, but it's something that I thought was interesting as you were talking about how when you go into these new daycares, these new uh, facilities, you guys take the TVs out. Can you kind of tell us um, the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so th there's so much time that you have to make an impression on families. And so you have literally, you have five minutes when they drop the kid off and you got five minutes when they pick up. And so what I found was, is that during the busiest times is drop off and pick up. Well, that's, you have a lot of different age groups that are mingled together. So the easiest thing to do is to put the TV on. Well, if the family or the parent or the guardian drops off and the TV's on and they pick up and the TV's on, what do you think they're going to think all day? Yeah. That they watch TV. Now, childcare, we all know how expensive it is. Right. So what's the purpose of spending the money and investing in a facility in your child's education and all they do is watch TV and that's the perception that they have. So for me it was, I'm yanking it out of there. I don't even want the perception, the perception there within the business. Neither do I want the teachers 
to have a break. They're there to challenge the kids. They're there to invest in those kids. And every minute they're sitting there watching TV is a moment that they're not building up social and emotional skills amongst the other students, which is one of the most important things uh, for kids in that age group to develop is their social emotional skills. So if they're watching TV, man, they're not, they're just watching it. And they're, way, they're trading their time to watch TV and not learn. And that's extremely valuable. And our job at those kids' age is to make sure that we value their time whenever they don't know themselves the value of their own time. And so watching TV is just devaluing their time. So these are some kind of, these are the, the wrap-up questions. These are a little personal, but not super, not super personal, not like crazy crossing the line personal. Uh, so the first question is, this is a question I took from another podcast. I thought it was pretty interesting. And this question is, after all your success, what is one thing that you purchased that you would say is the most outlandish purchase you made? <laughs> I would say my Mercedes uh, is one of them. And my house was, is the second, uh, you know, my Mercedes is nothing special. It's a little uh, GLE uh, crossover SUV. I absolutely love it. Um, a lot of people don't drive that type of vehicle uh, around some of the things that I'm doing. Uh, so it can look very outlandish to people. Uh, the second thing is the house that I had, it was 5,500 square feet at a theater room. I mean, it was on the golf course. It had all the views of the entire golf course in the backside of the house. So each room had a... Uh, had a view. I had a full library. So I would say that was, has to be one of the most outlandish purchases that I've made uh, was at home. What is the best place you have ever traveled? I have to say it was Hawaii. It was Maui. Uh, you know, from the time you get off the airplane and you get in that airport, you know, you're in a completely different region. You know, you feel like you're in a completely different world because there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of windows in the airport. So you feel the breeze coming through. You see all the palm trees. It's that smell. And everywhere you look, it's postcard picture <laughs> quality, you know. And so it was very secluded, which I love that. And, uh, and the people were extraordinary. It was just an all-around great place to be, all-around great people. Because it's funny, when you fly there, it's not a cheap trip. So anybody that's on that trip, has something going on in there. I mean, they're doing something. You just stop flying there to go hang out for a couple of days. I mean, it's expensive. And so it was very cool to be at an early age in my, I think I was 19 or 20 uh, when we took the trip up there to Maui and it was just phenomenal. Who is somebody that you look up to and why? Jim Rohn, incredible guy, man although he's dead, uh, but his message was extremely simple, very practical, and it's something, there's, there's not a message that he's, he, he said that you can't grab something, a hold, that you can't grab a hold of and apply to your life and it make, you know, major shifts and perspective shifts uh, in your life. And so I, I would have to say Jim Rome uh, is, it's got to be one of the, the most guys that one of the guys that I look up the most for sure. What is your favorite business book? Hmm. I would say it is, man, that's tough, man, because I'm so heavy on leadership as you heard over the last hour. So it's got to be 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. Interesting. That's the green book, right? No, that one's the red book. Okay. I have to check that out. Yeah, man. Look, if, if you're <laughs> leadership is the key. You can lead yourself. You can lead others. Last two questions is the first question is, what does wealth mean to you? Wealth to me means progress. Um, that it doesn't matter the figure. 
uh, it matters to me the progress for me to get it, what's become of me to reach it, and what's become of me to now help and contribute to others. That's what wealth uh, means to me. So that pretty much wraps up the show. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. It's crazy. We could have definitely taken this a lot longer and, and went into more details, but I think that there's just a ton of value just in this, this hour that we talked and I have a page full of notes. I learned a ton. I know the <laughs> listeners are going to learn a ton. Uh, you're truly an inspiration and I'm trying to join that mastermind group that everybody keeps talking about because um, obviously there's some good things going over there. You're connected to some good people. Where can people find out more about you? So I, I would say the best way to find out about me is on Instagram. Uh, you can go, it's Nathaniel T. Moore Fan. Uh, that's my handle. Uh, I have a lot of uh, things going. I have somebody that follows me around every day. So uh, there's a lot of content that I'm putting out on my story of me living my life as a CEO and making decisions, looking at deals, meeting people. So all of that's in my story. And, uh, and that's where you can learn the most about me is through Instagram. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. This has been episode number 76. My name is Charles Oglesby, also known as Todd Maynard. You can find us at www.capitaltodd.com. If you are interested in joining the investment club, either real estate or stocks, you can email us at www, or not www, it's at membership at capitaltodd.com. Again, my name is Charles Oglesby, also known as Todd Maynard, signing off. This episode of the Todd Capital Millionaire Podcast is sponsored by Blacker Pockets. Blacker Pockets is an online urban real estate investing community designed to educate and inform you on the benefits of investing in the inner city, as well as provide you with the tips and strategies to successfully do so. You can find Blacker Pockets on Instagram at, at Blacker Pockets.